roses turn to scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I Welcome back to You'll Understand When You're Younger. Thanks to Ted Heineshevitz for that beautiful intro song, You and I. Uh, Check out his stuff on Spotify or anywhere where you listen to music. Uh, We really appreciate him letting us use it. And hello, Dad. How are you doing today? Hey, Jordy. I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself, sir? Oh, I've never been better. Never been better. (laughs) What's your weekly question? Well, my question this week is... Do you eat food that's past its expiration date, even if it smells and looks okay? Never in a million years. In okay, fact, why not? I'm so afraid of expired food that I, if I even see it nearing its expiration date, I'll toss it. Um, so I think you get that specifically from your mom because she does the same thing. I... I guess it's just, I think we talked about this indirectly when we did the what's the worst thing you smelled question. <laughs> yes. And I talked about how I think that rancid milk is one of the most horrifying things to like take in with the senses. Yes. I have a very visceral sense when I am eating or drinking something that when it when it tells me that it's rotting, like when you taste it past expiration, right. and you can tell that it's disgusting, I feel very endangered. I don't know what that is. Like there's there's a lot of things that should scare me in this life that don't. <laughs> right. But the food killing me from within is <laughs> one that I I don't know. It's I, it seems like a rational fear. I just have a very heightened sense of not wanting to eat bad stuff. So I think that's like you're born with that. I'm not sure that that can be bred, but maybe it can. I think indifference to expired food can be taught, but severe fear of expired food is maybe um, just a natural instinct. So that's what I'll say. I don't know. I don't have a specific reason. I just know I've always been afraid of it. And I think it's linked definitely to when I've tried expired milk, trusting that it wasn't expired and being so (laughs) horrified. Oh, I'm just, I can't even talk about it without thinking about about it. It's disgusting. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. So anything like that, like I'm even afraid sometimes to even do leftovers, you know, really we have refrigerators and stuff, so I really shouldn't freak out about it, but I'm, you know, like what if it's got a slight layer of slime and I can't tell, but it's still there, you know, like that, that kind of shit bothers me. It it shouldn't. That part's a little irrational, but yeah, it's terrifying. That's funny. I, uh, I, I, I find that humorous. So, so for me on that front, um, for the most part, the answer is um, no, it, it, but there is some dependencies. So I'm total in total agreement with you in terms of like milk and cheese and anything that's dairy. That's just you're really, I think, pushing some some boundaries there. Uh, but other things I I don't have quite the same um, fear of. So like uh, like a bag of Doritos. You know, you have a bag of Doritos in there, and boy, you should have eaten them by, uh, you know, June 26th, and it's June 30th. I'm eating them. Doesn't matter. I like Doritos enough that uh, 
I'm not concerned about it. Plus, those things have enough preservatives. It's probably not going to harm you. But absolutely dairy-related things, no chance. Uh, I would do that. Okay, I'll amend my answer. Okay. If it's something that you will keep in the pantry even after you open it, I will try it past its expiration date to see if it's still good enough to eat. Sure. But if it's anything that would is goes in the fridge or goes in the fridge after you open it, I don't touch it. And stuff in the freezer doesn't go bad, so that's not really a, an issue. Fair enough, fair enough. So what made me think of this question, I'm going to spin off this on two things, and what made me think of it was something that actually happened this week, and it was tied to something that happened years and years ago. So... Mom and I were at Grandma and Grandpa Johnson's house this week, mm-hmm. and we were sitting there talking with them, and we were sitting at their uh, at their their dining room table, and on their dining room table was a jar of jelly, and on that jar of jelly it was it was grape jelly, and it was sitting there, and I said, "Hey, Mom, um, you know it's like four o'clock on Sunday, you know, why do you still have your jelly sitting out from breakfast this morning?" She's like, "Oh, we just leave it out all the time." And I was like, what? She's like, yeah. And so I said, but mom, it's it's jelly and I know there's preservatives in it, but you're supposed to refrigerate. In fact, even on the jar itself, refrigerate after opening. Well, we don't. We just leave it out. And and, and that horrified me. That's not dairy, not anything, but it just it horrified me. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're just this leave this jelly sitting out all the time. To me, that seems like it's a great place for for bacteria and germs to to build because you know they use um you know, butter on their toast before they put jelly on. And so, so potentially the butter mixes with the jelly and just festers and just causes all kinds of problems. To me, that just was, was scary as all get out. So that's one thing that tipped it on there. But then that also reminded me of something else. So when grandma and grandpa Johnson were moving from where they uh, lived for 50 years, they lived in a place called Broken Park, Minnesota, and they owned the same house for many, many years. And as we were leaving uh, that house, we were helping them clean stuff out. And in the pantry was a jar of, again, grape jelly. This grape jelly had not been opened, but the expiration date was July of 1978, which, okay, great. But this was 2001. <laughs> and so I have those memories of things that are <laughs> past the expiration date. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't, those things don't scare you, but I just, I don't think I would eat them. Now that 1978 jelly, we just went ahead and tossed it. We didn't give it a shot. You got to try it. If it's been, oh, no. if it's sealed, it's like uh, that movie Holes. They have the sploosh. You remember yes, that? I it's do. It's like old canned peaches that oh, ha- have been sitting sealed in the jar and they eat it. And it's one of the best things they've ever tasted in their entire life. Maybe grape jelly oh. ages like wine. You wouldn't know because you won't try it. It was sealed. There's uh, no bacteria in there. 1978. It was 2001. No dice, man. No dice. I mean, if it's sealed, that's safe. If it, if it had been opened, that's a different story. And as as to the uh, grape jelly on the counter thing, I actually do have a like a question about this. That like sure. pops open another can of worms that I think about all the time. When you go to a restaurant and you sit down. The first thing that I check is to make sure there's what on the table. If I go ketchup. with you, 
That's right. Ketchup. And oftentimes there's mustard as well. And they buy, for the most part, the same ketchups that I buy in the store. Right. On those containers, the ketchup says, refrigerate after opening. Absolutely. The mustard says, refrigerate after opening. Absolutely. But there's, I'm pretty sure the restaurants don't take all of the ketchup and mustard off the table in between mealtimes or even overnight and put it in the fridge. I'm pretty sure they leave all of those condiments on the table from the point at which they're full to the point at which they're empty. Do you think that's a correct assumption? I would say that the vast majority of restaurants do exactly that. There are some that do not, but they're the vast majority do. So would that prevent you from putting ketchup or mustard if you got a, a Chicago dog and they forgot to put an ingredient on, but it's at the table? So or how I'm gonna about an- to eat a French gonna, fry? So I'm going to answer this question in a way that seems totally irrational. But I don't think of that stuff when I'm sitting there eating on purpose, I try not to think of that. Otherwise, I probably would not. I, so so, so uh, I, my point is, how do we judge the grape jelly differently when they have the same, like they're both fruit-based, um, you know, preserved liquid, non-Newtonian liquids, right? So I, I don't know it, how, I, I think, how to judge them differently. And so I, think, I have to say grandma's right. So in my thought process, it's because grandma and grandpa have control of actually putting it into the refrigerator and it feels like it's a lot closer to home, as it were, than uh, if you're going out to a restaurant. I can convince myself that, yes, indeed, these guys took all the safety precautions that they were supposed to take. You know, when I walked in, I, I'm just, that's how I'm convincing myself of that. Okay. Whether it's true or not, it's another story. When I'm at home, my expectation is that all of the safety precautions should be taken. Your, so, your mind castle is built on a bed of sand, I will tell you that. I'm just telling you right now, that's the way my mind is going to continue to work. You're not going to force it not to. That's fine. I'm just saying maybe we got to judge grandma a little less for her grape jelly habits and not assume that butter and jelly mixing causes bacteria. And, you know, it, maybe maybe everything's okay. I refrigerate my ketchup at home. I wouldn't go near grape jelly even if it wasn't expired. But I, I'm hesitant to judge her if I'm willing to eat ketchup anywhere. And 99 times out of 100, it, it hasn't made me sick. In fact, I don't know if ketchup has ever made me sick, but that's now a factor if I get sick from food, it could have been bacteria in the ketchup. Who knows? Yes. See, now you're going to start carrying your own ketchup with you. I already did that in many cases when I had my car because they never give you enough ketchup packets. They don't. They just, uh, it's very slim pickings, especially so, since, since the COVID stuff, it's even worse. Whenever I would go to the grocery store, I'd buy two things of ketchup and I'd put one in my dash console and put one in my fridge. <laughs> Do you have some grape jelly in there too? Nope. All right. Hey, I, I think we can agree that if it was mayonnaise, that just that's not yeah, good. Yeah, mayonnaise right? is a whole different beast. Another thing that I would try to avoid even when it wasn't expired. But but yeah, you're absolutely right. Good question, Dan. Prompted a lot mm-hmm. of follow-ups.
All right. So I decided for this week's feature story, we were going to talk about the subway. And before I start digressing into the aspects of the subway, I'll explain why I decided to do it this week. Uh, We've been taking a break from recording as I've been moving from Raleigh to Boston. And here in Boston, every day I take what they call the T or the MTBA, which I don't, I don't know, Metro Transit, Boston Authority, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, I take that to work every day. And two days ago, on the way home from work, I got on the rail car of the T on the red line headed north inbound. And I had to get off of the train because the conductor came on and said that the whole train was beginning to smell like smoke and we needed to evacuate it. And then I smelled through my mask, which normally without your mask, you just things kind of waft in there. But when you have the mask on, you kind of have to really take a deep breath in sometimes to get the smell. And then I smelled that in fact, there was a smoky smell. And so then everybody got off the train they opened all of the windows on the sides and back of the train and they rode off with the empty train to, for it to get serviced. And so I was like, huh, that's interesting because these subway trains, they don't use you know, combustion engines, right? right. Uh, yeah. how, how do they really work and why would one catch fire? Now, I wasn't really able to find a definitive cause for why one would start smoking, But I did learn a lot about how the subway worked and how they classify different railways. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to talk about it. I love it. It's a great topic. So uh, I guess I'll start off by saying that the first subway ever was the London Underground, which opened in 1963. And it was the, the first underground railway system ever. Uh, Of course, the railway had been invented in America with the race between the horse and the steam engine and all that stuff uh, earlier on in the 19th century. And on the first day, uh, more than 30,000 passengers rode on what they call the tube, the tube. (laughs) Uh, And it's been a, a hit success ever since. And then the lauded, much lauded New York City subway, which we called the subway in America, and everything else kind of has a different name, but New York has the subway, opened in 1904. So it trailed its um, its over-the-pond counterpart by uh, a few decades, but 1904 was when it first started. That's surprising that there was that much of a, of a I'll call it a lag between uh, – London's opening of theirs versus something happening here in the U.S. Uh, and I'm sure it had to do with costs and trying to map out things. But that is that is a very long time. I would have expected the the uh, New York one to be more of a, you know, maybe the 1880s even. Uh, so, so the fact that it was in, ni- in the early 1900s is surprising to me. Well, so here's what I, th- I think about. Um, there... We London, England had kind of eclipsed us in the way of, I guess what what was at the time now, like obvious basic human 
needs or rights or whatever, but but was at the time considered progressive. So like they outlawed slavery, I think in 1807. We ended it in 1860. They provided public transit for people in 1860. We provided it in 1900. So there was a little bit of a, a gap in the policy views of Americans and English people within the 19th century, I think. And then since then, we've kind of ridden stride to stride uh, with all of Western Europe on how we view um, the American workforce and this and that and public transit. Um, I, I wouldn't say our policies always reflect our viewpoints here because it's much more difficult, I think, to pass legislation in this federalist state than it was in London. And maybe that's why we lag behind them too, because right. to get a subway in London, they can probably have a little bit more unilateral control than, than they could have here. But it also just might've been a more, more progressive viewpoint. I think those are the, the two most likely scenarios. What do you think about sure. that? No, I think that makes sense, Jordan. I think that, uh, you know, maybe our form of governance government, uh, was detrimental in those certain circumstances uh, because, you know, everyone has to have their say, which is a great thing, but it also can mean that things go a little slower. Whereas uh, in uh, England, while they have the parliament and they have, uh, you know, the prime minister, you also have the ability for someone to make a, uh, hey, here's how we're going to do this and here's why we're going to do it and when we're going to do it. So not necessarily authoritarianism, but they have the ability to be a little more authoritarian than we do here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, they've kind of adopted a more federalist kind of structure where mayors and governors of areas in London are are now democratically elected. Uh, right. I, that might have been the case at the time, but they also might have been appointed, which would have meant uh, from top down, you would have had a lot more control. Yeah. Uh, so I, I haven't looked into how everything was organized in 1863, but I could imagine that there was still a lot of, of unilateral power coming from the prime minister and the queen her, and king themselves. I don't yep. know who was, a, if it was a queen or a king in 1863, but yeah, I don't, I don't have the history of that. Maybe they'll do, you know, a prequel of the crown and we'll be able to learn that. Yeah, maybe. And we'll see them putting in the tube. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you and I have been on it. And, yeah. and let's just divert there for a bit. So you and I have been on the Paris Metro. We've yeah. been on the London Tube. We've been <laughs> yep. on the L in Chicago. Yes. We've been on the New York subway. We've been yep. in the DC Metro. I think yes. we've both been on the Philadelphia subway. Yes, we have. Not together, but we've both been Correct. on it. And yes. we've both, well, did you did you ever ride the T when you were out in Boston before? Or... So I have been on it before. Yes, not with you. Right. Okay. So of all those ones we've tried, basically all the available options in America plus London and Paris, which one did you like the most in terms of seamlessness, environment, right? Because subway culture is its own kind of thing. You get down, oh, sure. you're underground, and you'd think it'd all be the same, but each one's a little bit different in comfy Agreed. and uncomfy ways. So Absolutely. just give me a ranking f for my own sake. Sure, sure. So for me, now it's been, I've only been on the on the T in Boston for one quick ride. So 
that that is going to be hard for me to to do a true judgment. So yeah, no problem. You, and you can but, factor that into your ranking. Sure. So so number one for me, uh, and and not even close, honestly, is in terms of the best experience for me uh, was the Metro in Washington D.C. And I'll tell you why. They like many of the places they don't allow you to have uh, drinks or food while you're on there. And for the most part, people actually listen to that and don't do it. And so it's very clean from that perspective. I think that everything is very well marked and it's a super easy system and none of them are super complex. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. But it's it's a super easy system to use. It ha- it's got a very far reaching uh, approach. Uh, where you can get on the metro in certain parts of Virginia and take it all the way into DC, goes down into uh, you know into Maryland and stuff. So that's number one. Um, uh, so my last, I'm not going to rank all of them. I'll just go first and last and maybe give highlights. Uh, my the worst one, uh, and you may be thinking that the worst one in my, in your mind for me is probably going to be Paris, but I'll talk about that in a second. It's not. It's actually Chicago, and. Uh, the, while Chicago's train goes all over the place, it, it, that probably has, has as much or more reach than any system that I've been on. Uh, maybe New York's bigger, but uh, I just don't like it. It's loud. It feels dirty all the time. Every time I've been on the L, it's been dirty. Uh, and maybe it's just the trains that I've been on and the areas that I've been in. But it's dirty. It's way too loud. Uh, it feels like it's like overaged. And what I mean by that is I don't know when it was built, but let's pretend it was built in the 60s it feels like it was built in the 20s so that is the lowest ranked one that i that i have interesting uh, yeah and then and then kind of an aside would be uh would be paris uh, you know the, the the paris one was challenging for a couple reasons one uh, you know uh, some of the signs were in english but many of them were in french and my french when we were there yeah. was horrible that was i can't horrible. fault them for but no nope, yeah. that's 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 on us um but what I can fault them for is uh, as we were going descending into different levels of the metro, there were these little things that are along the side of the walkways that you're going. And so you're, mm-hmm. you're going through the tunnels and there's the troughs, some little yes, troughs, troughs that are on the side. And, you know, you and I hadn't really seen that before when we had traveled other places. And so we're kind of wondering what it was for. And uh, we found out what they really were for. However, we found out how people are really using them. And what they're really... <laughs> What they're really for is that when they, they get a heavy rain, it can uh, run all the water along the sides of the tunnels so that the tunnels don't flood. That's a great Into idea. Into a storm drain, yeah. So yeah, they don't have to idea. pump water, don't have to worry about it flooding the station, yeah. Yes, very smart, very smart. However, how are they really used? Well, I will just say this. The smell of the subways or the metro They're in urine troughs. Plants, Oh, it was disgusting. There you are. That was probably the and it worst. Permeates. Yeah. Everywhere. You can't go anywhere. So, so now and it was summer, this... so it was humid, oh, so it smelled yes. like urine, and it was humid, and it was, it was gross. really. It was you gross. felt like you were just being embalmed with yeah. urine. Yeah, you. Yeah. It, it felt like you were cruising around in a porta potty. It was horrible. Okay. Horrible experience. So that's your ranking. I'm going to yes. be a little bit more brief, but I'm going to do all of them. Okay. Go for it. I think number one is the New York subway system because an idiot can do it and not get lost. Like it's so, so clear where to go. For the most part, 
the stations are laid out so that all the trains are right next to each other. So when you have to transfer, you're not walking through a long hallway at a station. Right. Yep. That's amazing. Uh, and they also have a lot of coverage to a lot of different parts. And it links up with like the Amtrak, which can then take you up and down the East Coast, all kinds of things. And right. they have frequent rides and they run very late. And for the right. most part, as far as public transportation goes, it's not the cleanest. DC is definitely cleaner uh, because people do eat and drink on the subway. And I'm not even sure if it's illegal because I think sometimes they sell food in the subway stations. But um, sometimes it can get a bit messy. And the thing that makes it really uncomfortable is all of the people down there who try to accost you for you know, Jesus <laughs> Christ or to give them money or whatever. Right. Um, but I still got to give it number one in spite of that. Then number two would probably be the DC Metro system for the reasons you listed. Number three would be the T where I'm at now. Uh, sure. I don't remember it when going on it when I was young, but it's a really amazing nifty little system. The only issue is that it's old. It's probably as clean as the DC one. Nobody eats or drinks on it. Uh, there's fewer people to accost you and it's, it's got great coverage, but it, the station layout is a little bit less convenient than New York, where oftentimes sure. if I'm transferring from one line, the red line to the orange line, I have to walk like half a mile underground to get from <laughs> where one That's train hard. picks me up to one, another train picks me up. And you feel terrible about yourself when you're speed walking all the way down the corridor and then you get there and the orange train just leaves because... Oh, yes. They still come like every 12 minutes, but in New York, they come every six. So it, it feels like it takes forever for another train to come if you just missed it. Right. Um, so that puts it solidly in third. And then fourth, I'm going to say the tube in London. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, maybe we didn't use it to its full extent, but I didn't feel like its coverage was um, as convenient, I, I'm, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to say I didn't write it enough to be able to judge it adequately, but I okay. liked it and it had a good vibe, especially yeah. compared to the one in Petty. And then all of these other ones, did I say the L yet? You have not gotten to the L yet. Okay, well, maybe I should put the L after the T. I actually really like the L. And I think that I have ridden it more frequently and more often than you have in recent yes, years because of my yes. friends in Chicago. A lot of the trains have been upgraded. They okay. are all pretty clean. The only issue that there's great coverage too. The only issue I have with the L is that it'll take like 20 minutes for a train to come. It I believe it seems like they don't come with a specific frequency and it seems like they don't have enough trains on the rail. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that's a cost-saving measure because it's certainly a robust enough system to do it, but uh, it's elevated, right? So if you're in Chicago in the winter and it's negative 10 and it's like 1 in the morning and you're really drunk and you're trying to get home and From you're waiting... <laughs> maybe and you're waiting <laughs> to catch the red line and it's like 24 minutes away that's not very helpful you can die of hypothermia in that time so they need to figure that out they need to put more trains on or make all of the stations underground and i don't think they're gonna do that because they love how it's elevated so yes. anyway there's that 
the Philadelphia one, not enough coverage. Um, Correct. And I don't know what else. Then Paris would be last because of the reasons that we mentioned. So that's my ranking system. That's your ranking system. We can do a little tier ranking video at some point of metro yeah, systems that we've Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. Well, the one that we forgot, I mean, and it's just a bit of a joke here, is the one that's in Minneapolis, that one. Uh, the light rail, yes. It's the interesting. So the light rail is a public transportation system, but light rails are technically different than subways. So yes. Uh, so I didn't know if we should throw that in, but we'll talk about the difference between light rails and heavy rails uh, All right. in that's a little good. bit. But I want to ask, do you know in 1863 or 1904 how they constructed these subway systems under cities that already existed because now we have what are called tunnel boring machines where we go and dig underneath sidewalks and roads and buildings and we spin a large wheel and dig out large holes at a very slow rate so it costs a ton of money, it takes a lot of power, and it takes forever to dig a tunnel, but you're not disturbing any of the ecosystem above. So do you so know how they my, did it before we had tunnel boring machines? Because 1863 was before the Industrial Revolution. So I'll speculate. My guess is they used, uh, I'm not sure if I'm using the right term, uh, dynamite or TNT. One of the two is what is my guess, is that's what they used. Uh, just from thinking of in terms of how they would have done like coal mining uh, as they're starting with some of that stuff. So it's interesting. I'd, I don't know the specific explosive, but how do you prevent a collapsing road above you if you blow up TNT in a, in underground? So that's a great question uh, that I probably don't have an answer to, okay. but I, I can picture them putting uh, like uh, wood frames up uh, that allow you to have some braces. And then as they blow stuff up, then they're starting to do cement forms. I don't know. I'm making this up here. At this so point. to build subways, they had to close down roads. Then they had to tear up the roads, often okay. made of cobblestone at the time. Sure. Dig giant trenches, put in the rails, lower a train down onto the rail, Oh my goodness. And then put the frame on the top and then build the cobblestone street back on top of it. Oh my gosh. And that, that, I can't even imagine how expensive that was. That sounds work intensive and it sounds expensive, but it is way faster than a tunnel boring machine because a tunnel really? boring machine has to work at a rate slow enough that it does not disturb the earth and cause the collapse of, say, the Chrysler building into East River. So. Wow. When you're building under roads and you can access it from above and drop the train in, it's actually a lot more efficient. And that's why they were able to build huge swaths of the subway at the beginning. But to expand the subway seems like it takes decades. And in fact, it, it has in New York. To add one more line, I don't have specific numbers, but it, it takes forever compared to what it took to build the initial lines. And they're always so adding the, on to it. So is that the same way that was used in New York and Boston? Before and, tunnel boring machines, yeah, if you were going to have an underground subway, that would be the way you had to do it. But in Boston, uh, they actually built it above ground first, and then they paid a lot of money to put it underground. 
Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, if you go out of the city center of Boston, all of the trains go uh, go back above ground. So okay. a quarter of my ride to work is underground, under all the downtown and financial area in South Boston. And then once you get out, out of town a little bit, then uh, you're just looking, you're riding along the ocean the whole way. So that is kind of the way that the, the London tube is as you got out to the outer rings you started going above ground so uh, i do remember when we were on the tube uh we went out to where the olympics were going to be held and that part that part of the line was above ground so that similar similar approaches yeah and i i would even say the the boston system feels very old-timey european it reminds me more of the tube and the paris metro reminds me more of the subway or vice versa Gotcha. Um, they just have a more European versus a more American vibe, I would say. Um, and then one thing of of interest as well. Um, do you know what the most popular metro system in the world is? So I have to answer your question with a question. The Are we talking about? Okay, the world, not just the, the ones world. that we've talked about. Uh, Tokyo. You would be wrong. Do you want okay, to? Ha- do you want a redemption guess or no? Well, I, I, I yes, but I'm going to sound really ignorant here because I, I don't know which city it would be. If it, you know, I'm going to guess a place in China. So whether that's uh, Shanghai or Beijing, uh, ding in China. ding ding, it's the Shanghai Metro. Can you guess what their annual ridership was reported to be in 2020? Annual ridership? Um, 120 million. 2.8 billion. 2.8 billion? Right. So we're not talking about the number of people. We're talking about the number of people who got on a ride over. No, I, I understand that in my head though, I was thinking 128 million. That's probably pretty high. I was not even close. That's 2.8 billion. And, uh, the Tokyo Metro, which you guessed was a close second at 2.75 billion. Wow. Wow. That neither of those surprised me just based on the populace of both of those, uh, the areas I, I don't know what the populace is in uh, Shanghai, but in Tokyo, I think it's around 40 million people in the city. Uh, and then ex- surrounding areas, it's much, it's even bigger than that. So that's, that's amazing how many riders per year. And, uh, and the New York uh, city subway that has 639 million annual riders, which puts it firmly in the top 25 near the bottom. That's that's still pretty amazing. So that's we we amazing. talk about it all the time, but cities like Moscow, Cairo, Shanghai, Tokyo, Beijing, Seoul, uh, Delhi, Shenzhen, Paris, Singapore, Taipei, Tehran—they're all all more popular than the New York City subway, which is interesting. Tehran uh, in Iran. Uh yeah, Tehran. Wow, yeah. wow. That has that, that eight hundred twenty million annual riders, and that, that that's surprising to me. And that's over uh over a hundred million more than the U.S. So, wow, crazy, right? 
Yes, I'm blown away. My 128 million was just so far off for all of these. Yes, the Paris Metro has 753 million. The Sao Paulo Metro has 763 million in Brazil. So it's a huge thing in other countries to have a very adequate public transit. And it seems that only New York has kind of risen to the challenge of, of providing an underground subway network. Uh, a lot of smaller cities are trying to go in after the fact and build what we call light rails, which right. are, uh, they're defined differently. So so the way that real subways work, maybe we'll take a, a, the time to mention this for four minutes, is using what's called a third rail system. So that means there's two rails that the train right. rides on. And then there's a third rail that a little piece of metal goes out from the side of the train and is in contact with that third rail, which you can right. see uh, at the far end of any like subway platform. You can see the third rail. It's a little bit taller. It's often covered with either metal or wood so that hopefully you don't touch it because it runs at 750 volts and will kill you in an instant if you touch it and are grounded. Um, but they, as they go along, they are in contact with that and they pull that voltage and then use it to run their little motors and then it's grounded into the tracks. Um, but light rails oftentimes don't use this third rail system. They use uh, electric cables or a combination of diesel and electric cables uh, or battery charged by electric cables. Uh, and because they don't use this more robust third rail system, they're often limited in the number of trains that can be on the tracks. Right. Uh, and they're also often limited by the weight of the passengers, which means they can only have so many train cars on a train. So these right. are designed for much lower volume at a much lower cost uh, because... If you're going to not have a below ground subway, if you're going to have an at ground subway that is kind of intermingled with your city, like in Minneapolis, for example, you can cross the street where there's a blue line track. You just walk right across the street. You walk right over the track. You can't have right. a third rail system there because you'll kill half the people who cross the street when they accidentally step onto the third line. You have to have the wires overhead or you have to have the train uh, quartered off in a place where people can't cross the tracks or you have to have it underground. So sure. light rails are designed to be much lower cost and much less effective. And uh, another light rail that comes to mind, though they refer to it as a street car, is the Milwaukee Hop, which is the worst public transit system that's... <laughs> ever been implemented in any city whatsoever and in fact part of my reason for making this episode is just so that i can shit on the milwaukee hop which takes you from nowhere to nowhere real slow i will i will agree that the hop is not an ideal uh setup and it doesn't that, really do much that's a very sweet way to put it it is the worst it makes no sense it uses a traffic lane so you can't even speed on the road. How rude of them. How rude. 
I, I, I'm not going to defend it. I Your just... wheel gets stuck in the rut if you drive on the wrong part of the lane because the stupid hop, which nobody rides because it takes you from nowhere to nowhere real slow, it doesn't go to Fiserv form, doesn't go to anywhere where sports teams play. It goes to one of the four universities in the Milwaukee area, and even then, only barely. And the only useful thing that it could take you to is honestly the bus station which right. n- very few people use anyway except if you're riding up back and forth to chicago from the amtrak because maybe you want to take a real subway system like the l <laughs> yeah so so light rails kind of suck and uh smaller cities just don't have the multi-billion dollar budgets to pull out these tunnel boring machines and dig these billion dollar tunnels uh, so that they can just have, you know, one train that nobody rides underground instead of one train that nobody rides above ground. But so, so that leads me to a question though. So yeah, if we it. think about this, uh, like you said, they have to have the tunnel boring machine. So why have places like Minneapolis or Milwaukee or where I currently live down in Phoenix, they, they, who also is building a light rail, why are they not doing elevated trains like Chicago? Uh, because that would allow them to have a much higher capacity and it would allow them to not have to have the boring machines. I'm assuming it's much more expensive. And again, you have to deal with the third rail aspect, but mm-hmm. I would be curious to understand why that's not the route they chose. You're absolutely right. I can only guess at that. And I would say that they were doing it more for the sake of being able to say um, that they ran a f- financially, like fiscally responsible public works project and put it on their voting record. And this is the issue with, public transit in America is that most time, if it gets done at all, which it rarely does, it gets done poorly because the person is not concerned about the public as much as they're concerned about um, themselves, right? I think that's an issue yes. with a lot of politicians here. Yes, agreed. And there's no real opportunity here for a giant scale private enterprise uh, I mean, that'd be interesting to see, but I'd imagine it wouldn't go over well with a lot of people if um, a company bought up tracts of land and did start building elevated rails over cities. Uh, that would certainly expedite the process because you would only need some government permits and not the complete oversight and management by uh, a sitting state's person. Uh, but I don't think that'll ever happen. We're also, we're just, we've been bred by the advertising industry to, to become car dependent. How, how's your Chevy truck month going, by the way? <laughs> Pretty good. Going well. Yeah. Good Chevy truck month. It's been, it's been, it's been awesome. That's it's been great. great. I watched a, an ad for Chevy truck month today, uh, where a person was evicted from their home and they had to fit all their belongings into their Chevy truck bed, and they were just grateful that they had a pickup truck. That's an ad they're running on television these days. So, okay, uh, so we're, we're not going to dive in, down that right hole, but there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> Holy buckets. Yes, that was the premise of the ad. Orange, wow. you glad you had a Chevy truck when, when you were evicted? <laughs> Orange, you glad? So this is why we need public transit, to get these ads off the air. <laughs> but it'll, ne- it'll never get done. Even like, I mean, the Elon, 
he's always doing some wild stuff but he, he he was like why isn't there more public transit maybe it's because tunnel boring is too expensive he's right so he starts this tunnel boring company that promises it can reduce the cost of boring a tunnel by by 10 times well i'll tell you the secret the tunnel's 10 times smaller and he's not putting uh-huh. anything in the tunnel so he's got a smaller machine that they run at a different rate. So it costs less to run it and maybe does it a little faster, but it still takes a really long time. And by the time these tunnels are done, they can't fit a, a transit system within them. And you also can't put a combustible car in them. And the reason subways are all electric is because if there was exhaust fumes in a subway, oh my gosh, everyone be would be dead. So... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just, I mean, they already have to ventilate it as it is. That's another reason why it's so expensive. I think I read something like 636,000 cubic feet of air gets pumped into the New York City subway every second or every minute or every hour or something. I I can't remember the exact metric, but it's an insane number of air amount of air. And that's with an electric rail because you have to keep oxygen flowing down there so that people don't die. Um, And that's a cost you don't have to worry about with an elevated rail. I don't know. I don't know why they don't build elevated rails, Dad. I don't know. I think maybe just still like, oh, it's a monstrosity of a project that takes up a lot of space. You know, it always looks good when they do the renderings in Gotham, though. And the monorail in Disney, who doesn't love that? That's my grandma's favorite ride at Disney is the monorail. Exactly. I'm I'm sure some of it's the aesthetics in terms of, uh, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, which yeah. is part of the reason why, like I, you know, I ranked the L uh, very low in my rankings. I see. I would say though that again, if you went to the L today and you just spent a full day riding the different lines, I think you'd be impressed because they have redone a lot of the stations. Not, I wouldn't sure. say the in between like the track parts, but sure. it's got that like industrially metally vibe. That, that is very befitting to Chicago, at least. Maybe not to a place like Minneapolis. But I'll say it's this. Been a lo- it's been ahead. a while since I... Yeah, sorry. It's been a while since I've been on it. So I think that your your recommendation is one that I should probably take at some point. Yeah. Um, I will say this about the Minneapolis one. I am impressed by the way that they have expanded it. It might not be the fastest or most robust system, but if... You are a person who uses public transit. You can go north, east, west, and south from the city center all the way as far as... You're not going to believe this. Have you looked at the orange line? Here, I'm going to Google it right now. Yeah, no, I, have, I, have, I haven't looked at the, uh, the Minneapolis light rail for, for many years since... It goes north of Elk River. That is impressive. It, uh, that's much further than I ever, ever, frankly, expected it to go. You could, I think it, I want to say it goes up to like Big Lake or something. Yeah, that that's that would be just past Elk River, not too far, probably 15, 20 miles. That's impressive. If it can, if it can do that, then I would say that that is a success. Uh, when it first started, I would never have imagined it was going to be like that. Okay. okay, sorry. So that's, I could be wrong. That might just be a public transit line, but not an actual subway. Okay. The north, so they probably, north they probably might bring be a light bus. rail. Yeah, and then take the bus to go there. That's the way the one in Phoenix works here. Yeah, that could be it too. Either way, they've got pretty good coverage if you're willing to get on a bus. Like the buses here for the T in Boston 
are built to look exactly like a subway car and they're equally as clean. So it's kind of like, it's not a big deal. And a lot of times you transfer to whatever bus you're going to get on from within the station. You're not like walking along some street corner waiting for a bus to come to. That makes it a lot easier, much easier. Yeah. So you're just transferring it like a subway car. It's just a little bit smaller because only a certain number of people can get on a bus, but they come more frequently uh, and they work pretty well. So yeah, I feel like we, we ran through subways pretty good there. Yeah, that was an interesting topic, Jordan. I, I like that you that you uh, brought that one up. There's a lot to talk about in all of that, uh, but the point is we need better mass transit systems in the U.S. to reduce dependency on cars because if we want to make the switch to EVs to help our climate, we're not going to have enough lithium uh, to make all of those batteries to replace all those cars on the road. We're going to run out of supply very quick and it's difficult to recycle batteries we can do it but it's very difficult and it will make cars more and more expensive over time so while they're working on improving battery technology which they are the process needs to reduce car dependence overall instead of just convert car dependence from gasoline to electricity we need mass transit system in our cities Los Angeles needs to be the first project. They have to get some public transportation there. They have such a huge traffic problem, such a huge smog problem. It's ridiculous to me that they can't find a way to build an effective metro there. They've got one that shuttles you from the airport to downtown, but everything else, I mean, nobody uses LA public transit and they need to improve it by 10,000 times. So I totally agree with you. I think the challenge we have um, is ego. Uh, and I'm saying that's not just individuals' egos. I'm talking as a collective uh, country. Our egos are too big in certain circumstances that, hey, we're, we're, we're Americans and we can do things the way we want. And you're not going to tell me I need to take mass transit when I can own this car or that car. Uh, regardless of what the car is, it doesn't even matter if it's a you know, small Toyota or a huge you know, semi-truck. It's a pickup truck. You know, it's a pickup well, truck it, that you picked Chevy up at truck. Chevy Truck Month. Yeah, it's a Chevy Truck Month. Yeah, so I think that's a lot of what factors into this. Uh, and I mean, to to be, to, to also part of it is because of the vast expanse of our country and this and so many different areas that uh, that have basically it's just open land. Yes, uh, that makes people go. Well, I need to have a car because what if I want to make a trip? Okay, well, we can figure that piece of it out, but in the city, which you spend 85 or 90% of your life in, uh, you probably don't need a car. And yeah. you you wisely made that same exact decision when you moved from Raleigh to, to Boston. You said, hey, why am I going to pay to park my car, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month just to park my car that I'm not going to use the whole time I'm here? It, it doesn't make sense. When you're in a city center, which I believe over 60% of Americans live in, it not just in the city center, but in a big city. Metro area, yeah. Metro area. There should be enough public transportation that people feel comfortable taking. I I implore people to ask themselves when the last time is that they they took a road trip, honestly. And we're not just talking about the pandemic. Like, that's a priority for some people. Certainly it is for me. But if you take a road trip, often you're going with other people. Only one person needs to have a car in that case. So let's say you go on a road trip with four people every five years. That means that 
every five years, one person needs to rent a car for six days. I mean, it's insane. The car culture here is insane. But you're absolutely right, Dad. A lot of people living in other countries, the countries are geographically a lot smaller. And so it, it just isn't, there's not as much of an upside to having a car as there is in America to have that freedom. But people That's don't cool. use that freedom. So people should be real with themselves and start riding the public transit more and forcing our, our lawmakers to build public transit for people who are greatly detrimented by, I mean, my subway pass for unlimited rides for the month costs $90. Uh, I don't have to have car insurance. I don't have to pay for gas. I don't have to pay for electricity. I don't have to pay for maintenance, you know, any anything like that. I mean, we force people to live on the outskirts of town and then work minimum wage jobs at the center of town, and they're forced to provide their own transportation to do that, all to serve uh, those who are more affluent. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's just a strange system we've got here. And I feel like public transit is a good way to alleviate some of the inequities that we have and also I, reduce I the climate so. impact. Absolutely. So, yep. Hope, hope for the future. Good feature story, dad. Thank you. Damn. Okay, pop, let's go ahead and, and you go first on this week in media. Cause I just spent such a long time talking. <laughs> All right, so this week in media for me is the NCAA tournament. Uh, and for, <laughs> just for the purposes of today, I'm going to focus on the men's tournament. There's a women's tournament that's the same exact size, same exact time frame going on. But Marquette's uh, but, not in it, so we don't care. So we're focusing on the men's tournament. So with that being said, uh, it's more about, to me, this is one of my favorite times of the year, uh, regardless Amen. of whether – regardless of whether or not the team that is my favorite team is in it or not, it's still my favorite time of the year. Uh, the NCAA tournament, 68 teams trying to get down to one and, and win the championship. It's awesome. Uh, I mean, just even this week, and I won't go too deep in too deep into this, but just even this week, we've had tons of craziness and upsets. You know, a team from, from a small town in New Jersey is in the sweet 16s, you know, St. Peter's. That's just insane, you know. And you know, our favorite team, Marquette, they they made it, uh, which is awesome. They lost, uh, which blown is unfortunate. Out. Absolutely blown out by North Carolina. They lost, but uh, that's unfortunate. But hey, here's the thing: you don't get a chance to win in championship unless you're in the tournament, that's right? right? You can't win it unless you're in it. And then and North so, Carolina knocked off number one seed Baylor. So I feel I'm feeling good about our chances next year if we get a, get a better seeding, you know. Absolutely. So to me, this is my favorite time of the year. I know I have friends who uh, opening weekend, which is just occurring now, they'll you know take Thursday and Friday off and watch the games all the, all game and all, I mean, all all day and all night. Some of them go to Vegas and, and sit in the sports books to, to to you know to put bets down on what's going on. So this is also you know it's one of my favorite things to do is is watch basketball, but it's also Vegas is one of their favorite times. The Super Bowl is huge. But this is almost as big. And who does not like a good NCAA pool? I mean, we're in one True. together. Um, and so it's just a fun thing that that you can do. So uh, this week in media is get out there. And if you have not watched the NCAA tournament at all uh, over the last couple of years, get out there and watch it. It's a lot of fun. You don't right. even have to be a basketball fan. By the time this is published, it'll be all but over, I imagine. But that's okay. Uh, yeah. Catch it next year. You got the advice now. Or 
you can do the second best event in sports, what I like to call it, the NBA playoffs, finals, and championship sequence that that will be upcoming as well that I am also anxiously awaiting. Uh, Another great season in sports. That will be a feature story somewhere down the road, I'm sure. For sure, for sure. Uh, How about yourself, Trudy? Yeah, great question. Uh, So mine is an album that I already sent to you, Dad, and talked about uh, with you a little bit. Uh, It's a pop album by, I guess, I don't know what genre she would like to be referred to, but this is definitely a pop album uh, by Charlie XCX. Uh, I don't listen to a ton of like modern pop music. I mostly listen to old man, like old folk, old rock, (laughs) uh, old um, new wave, I guess, stuff. So... Anything that can get my attention, like by the quality of the music to like jump into into modern pop, I know like is going to explode in popular culture because if it's crossover enough to hit me, who can't it hit is what I'm saying. That's my (laughs) point. So when Miley Cyrus came out with all those that that pink album, I don't think it's called pink. It's just it had like uh, Midnight Sky. I think that's what it's called or something. But Yeah, when I heard that and I was amazed, I was like, oh, this is going to be a big album. And then it was a big album. And this album by Charlie XCX is loaded top to bottom with absolute bangers uh, about being, you know, young and in love and out of love and in between and all of the confusing stuff that comes with that. And then also the attention of being a pop star in your 20s. She's, uh, She's British, I know that much. And I know that she's been at it for years. And in fact, she performed... In Milwaukee, when I was working for The Wire, and I didn't elect to shoot the concert, but one of The Wire photographers got a press pass and went and covered it. Uh, I didn't even know who she was at, at the time, so I didn't didn't bother. But uh, <laughs> but now I wish I had. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's called Crash is the name of the album, and it's absolutely amazing. And if you have an open mind, you should check it out. So just real quick, I have listened to portions of it. I haven't had a chance to get through the whole album, but I have also enjoyed it. I, I actually particularly enjoyed the uh, the uh, title uh, track. Yeah, the title Crash. track, Crash, is really good. Yeah, it's, it's just like um, it hits all the senses in your ears, you know? That's the, the difference between, I think, a lot of modern recordings and older recordings is not the difference in the way that the song is composed, but the technology has come so far in the way that we get to hear the music, that it's really Absolutely. quite something. Like I think a lot about how if um, if the Beatles would have had the capabilities for the stereo sounds the way that we layer them now, how immersive all of their music would have would have felt, you know. And some of the stuff they can do the, with the remasters with with the master tracks, but a lot of it they can't because it's already all been layered together, you know. Right. I agree with you. Um like you said, from the songs that I've listened to, it definitely hits your ears differently. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I definitely will finish the album. I've only gotten through, I think there's, I think there's maybe 10 or 12 songs. I've gotten through about four or five of them. I will definitely finish it. So that was, that was a good, uh, shout out to uh, send that off to me, Jordy. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a good little touch on this week in media. All right, Pop, what's something you learned this week? So something I learned this week is 
that, uh, well, let me ask you this. You know what a super soaker is, right? I have to assume you do. That's I think everybody it's knows where what you one is. shoot the gun and it's full of water and then it gets people wet. Yes, yes. A absolutely. water gun, large water yes. gun. Yes, it's a large water gun, hence the name super soaker. So the super soaker was invented by a NASA nuclear engineer in his bathroom by accident. How'd that so, happen? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting story. And then there's a little uh, addendum to this that makes it even cooler. Uh, so the nuclear engineer's name is Lonnie Johnson. And in 1982, he was trying to figure out uh, what he could do to create a freon-free heat pump. So a heat pump is what we use uh, here in the Southwest that does both our air conditioning and our heating in one device. Uh, so in some areas of the country, you have an air conditioner and or a furnace. A heat pump does both. And so he was looking to try and figure out something that was going to allow it to be freon-free because he was wanting to make sure that he was uh, protecting the environment. Again, in 1982, he's trying to think, think ahead. Mm -hmm. So when he was messing around with that, he had some nozzles that he was testing around with in his bathroom sink. And when he had attached the faucet to it, this jet of water just poof, just shot right out and, and went across the room. And he's like, holy cow, this gives me an idea, you know. And so he cobbled together a bunch of stuff. He got a soda pop bottle and some PVC pipe and some O-rings. And suddenly he created a prototype of this super soaker and gave it to his daughter. So she was out running around in the neighborhood. Shooting people, people with had, the super soaker. Yeah, That's great. People had their little, their little hand, um, uh, you know, uh, water guns. And she has this super soaker that can just, it can, you know, Blow soak you, you with one squirt. Insane. So I, obviously everyone was like, wow, this is really cool. And her friends were like, oh, you got to build me one, build me one. So he, he, in his head was like, maybe I could sell this. So for seven years, he pitched this idea for seven years. He pitched the idea uh, to, to for companies to buy it because he realized it was going to cost him about $200,000 to put this in, into production, and nobody bought it. So he, in 1989, decided to go to a toy fair in New York City, and he met a guy from the company Laramie, and he set up a pitch meeting and showed him the prototype, and the, and the guy went nuts. He's like, oh, my gosh, you haven't told anybody else about this, have you? And he's like, yeah, I've been trying to sell it for seven years. He's like, we are going to sell millions of these things. And he was a little dubious, obviously, based on kind of what had occurred. Um, but they put it out there, and it, and it sold okay, and then started taking off um, uh, quite quite a bit. And then they put out a commercial for it. And that summer, they went from selling about you know four or five thousand the previous summer to twenty million, twenty million guns in one summer. Wow! Insane. That is so this insane. guy, yes, this guy is a you know, trying to save the world. Ended up making a super soaker. Isn't that how it, it goes? Yes, but here's the other addendum to this, which is even crazier. So you've also heard of Nerf, right? You've heard of Nerf footballs. Yes. He also invented. I, I've heard of Nerf guns. He invented the Nerf gun. I see. Same guy. So he he spun it and said, "Hey." I can do a super soaker. We can do this with Nerf. So it's he went. It's funny that you think of Nerf as a football <laughs> company, and I think of it as a gun company. <laughs> well, <laughs> difference in our ages, my friend. Yes. So, so anyway, it is it's one Nerf or nothing. That's what it is. It, there you go. So the super soaker. Just so you know, uh, one billion dollars in sales. 
from 1995 wow. to current date. Wow. Pretty amazing. Did, do you know when Nerf guns hit the market or is that not in your research? So the, the Nerf gun aspect of things, I, I don't have the exact date of that. But what I can tell you is I, I know that I was using Nerf guns in about 1991 or 92 because Troy owned a house. My friend Troy owned a house then and we went and bought some Nerf guns, so which he, were fairly new. he invented a Nerf gun before he invented the Super Soaker? No, the, the Super Soaker was invented in 1982 and uh, went into production in 1989. And the Nerf okay, gun okay. was after that. Got yeah, it, so 91, it, 92. Got it. Well, that's a good, so, uh, that's a good little tidbit. Yeah, I thought it was pretty crazy. This week, I learned from a book that I was reading, a novel, but it's a, it was a fact. I verified it, that um, there is no sheep farming in japan except for one very small region and the reason that that's interesting is because um the japanese follow or it didn't follow but they knew for thousands of years about the um chinese calendar that has you know all of the different animals on it so depending right. on yep. what month you're born you're assigned a specific animal and right. one of those animals on the chinese calendar is a sheep because sheep raising is very famous in China. It's they've, okay. they've got a very diverse climate from north to south so that right. they can raise different types of sheep. Um, and uh, so if you think about types of wool that you've worn on your feet, merino wool is the one that you like yes. the most. Everybody would Absolutely. say so because the wool is very soft and uh, it's stretchy, but it has all of those amazing water holding and waterproof ish kind of qualities and it's also very 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 comfortable those can only be raised in certain regions and are not hospitable in japan's climate and so i they didn't know that raise a certain type of sheep um the name escapes me it starts with an s but it was a much coarser wool so it had a lot okay. fewer commercial applications and so after many years of trying to start that agriculture the Chinese or the Japanese government gave up and allowed China to have a monopoly on the sheep raising trade. Uh, but that meant that before photography existed in that time when no sheep were being raised in Japan, Japanese people would have to come up in their minds with what a sheep would look like. And when they were drawing out the different <laughs> animals from the Chinese calendar, when they would draw sheep, sometimes it would look like a dragon or a dinosaur. Sometimes what? it would look like a hog because they had no conception of what a sheep actually was. Wow. There's some sheep that are in Hokkaido. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, which is one small region of Japan. Um, okay. But again, those are the ones with the coarser wool. Uh, and of course, now with photographs and the internet, Japanese people know what sheep look like just as well as you and I, <laughs> but it's not a part of their regular diet there the way that it is in Middle Eastern countries where there's a lot of sheep. Uh, right. It, there's no sheep wool trade, you know, huge, huge deal there. And for a long time, they might have thought that a sheep looked like a dragon if you asked them to describe it. That is crazy. That I love that fact. That is one of my favorite facts that yeah. I've heard ever. Thanks to uh, Haruki Murakami for talking about it in his book, A Wild Sheep Chase, which entails a man going around looking for a sheep in Japan. 
and he didn't know what it looked like or he knew what it looked he knew like what it looked but like because it was okay. in the time of photographs he was actually trying to find a specific sheep that he had a gotcha. photograph of gotcha because mm-hmm. it was that would that would have actually been a more interesting story at least in my mind with not having read it uh, for him trying to find a sheep not knowing what it looked like that would have been a more interesting story because i didn't find this story that he told to be very interesting but that is neither here nor there i don't want to crap on an author who is very famous and will have written more stories in his lifetime than i could ever dream to uh i love that fact but yes thank you to haruki murakami for that okay so this week in chess we're we're lagging again a little bit behind because we haven't been recording since I since I moved to Boston and we're finally back on top of it. But I think what we left off in the last last podcast was that Hikaru Nakamura had won the first leg of the FIDE yes. Grand Prix in Berlin. And the second leg of the FIDE Grand Prix, second of three legs, happened in Belgrade. Hikaru is competing in the first and third leg. Um but the second leg was won by a Hungarian player, uh, GM Michael Rapport. Uh, I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. He is a studly dud. He's a 2650 or maybe 27. Let's look at the chest wow. ratings real quick. So that's that's amazing. I think he's ranked higher than um, than Hikaru is on the on the live ratings site. So let's look real quick. Yeah, Rapport is currently 2776 classical FIDE ranking, which makes him seventh in the world at chess as of today. And wow. Hikaru is 16th. And now they'll both, I believe, be competing against each other in the third leg of the FIDE Grand Prix, which means that one of them is likely to qualify for the candidates and the other not. Uh, and it, it w- would, based off of purely their rankings, look good for rapport. So we need extra love for Hikaru uh, on the upcoming third leg. I don't have the dates in front of me, but I'm sure I'll talk about it next week. That's amazing. That's uh, I, I'm just still thinking about his ranking. That's Because I've heard you talk about Hikaru a, a ton of times. Uh, but I never heard you talk about uh, Michael Rapport before. Yeah, so the I mean, it, he's at that level. the longer we do this podcast, the more you'll hear about some of these amazing GMs. So Carlson, he's obviously the most famous. He's the world champion, right. and he's got a, a ranking of twenty eight sixty four. Um, but then there, there's, you know, f- uh, five other people. One, two, three, yeah, four, five between him and Rapport that I'm sure you couldn't name off the top of your head. Um, and I think that I could have named a few of them, but three of them are Americans and none of them are Hikaru. So uh, Levon Aronian is number fourth, Fabiano Caruana is fifth, and Wesley So is sixth. And Wesley So is actually from Minnesota. Wow. He lives I, in Minnetonka. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, so that's this week in chess. How about this week Brilliant. in Brian? All right. So for this week in, in Brian, uh, obviously we talked a little bit about having to put our marathon and hold. So I'm just going to talk about what I'm starting to train for now. So at the end of uh, uh, May on Memorial Day, I always do what's called the Murph Challenge. And so I'm just starting to get ramped up to do training for that. I'll give a 
brief overview of what it is and talk more about it at a different time. So it's a one mile run. And then you've got 100, 200, 300 of uh, pull-ups, push-ups, and squats, followed by another mile. So I'm starting to get ramped up to do some training for that. Uh, I'll, have, I'll take it slowly on the running uh, with my knee, but everything else I can get ramped up on. So that's what I'm working on this week. Nice, nice. Well, good luck with that. I know you have a very specific training plan for that that makes it kind of easy for you to ramp up on it. And uh, and I'm interested to see how you'll do this year because you got a pretty good PR last year, if I recall correctly. I did. I was very happy with my results, and I'm looking forward to trying to uh, top that this year if I can. All right. Well, thanks for potting with me, Dad. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it was great topics. Good to talk about the subway. And, and of course, um, head to your local Chevy dealership now and and pick up the largest truck you can. It's Chevy Truck Month. You know, lest you should get evicted between now and the time you buy a pickup truck, where you're going to put all your stuff, right? So, Plenty of room, baby. Yep, you got to fit it in the truck bed. Get get an upgrade. Get the towing package. You're going to want this sucker to haul because everything in your life has to fit into it, and that has to make you very proud. Has to make you very proud. I uh, have to look this commercial up now. Yep. After this, that commercial is going to be played. Yep. Uh, check out Chevy Truck Month. Yes,